So we are in our ACT series. It's um, part 3,000 of a 5,000-part series. It's a, long, it's a long book. We're actually making our way through it really well and uh, been really enjoying it. So we're going to look at Acts 18 and 19 today. If you'd like a Bible, you can put your hand in the air, and Usher will bring you one. We're going to be in 18.12 through 19.7 today. So we're going to read this whole thing through. Uh, there's, there's some elements in, of the story in the background that won't really make sense to you as we first read it unless you've looked into this passage. Uh, so I'll explain what we're, what's going on with this passage today. And then we're going to talk about some, some current events and things going on in our culture and just talk about what God might have to say about all of these things. So, Acts 18, 12 through 19, 7. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews are making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you, but since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle them out of yourselves. I'm not going to be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. <laughs> Bummer. <laughs> Man, that's rough. Good news is, later in the New Testament, Sosthenes actually becomes a Christian at some point. And so one of the later letters that is addressed talks about Sosthenes as a brother in Christ. So I don't know if they, <laughs> I don't know what happened. <laughs> Pretty rough, though. You, you remember last week we saw the synagogue ruler that, uh, that was in the synagogue when Paul was preaching at the synagogue, and it was resistant to the gospel. When Paul left the synagogue and said, I'm done with you guys, you're not listening to me, and they were being kind of getting violent with him, he went next door to the house next door, and then the synagogue ruler became a Christian. Uh, and, and then later on, this guy uh, that brought these charges against Paul became a Christian as well. So not so bad. Pretty good. But that's pretty rough. Uh, Gallio just watched this guy get beat up by this uh, mob, more or less. 1818. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at a centre because of the vow he had taken. Uh, this is a, most likely a Nazarite vow. It was kind of like a Jewish sacrament. Paul was Jewish, and so uh, people would say, I won't use a razor on my hair or my beard, and I won't, I'll abstain from alcohol as a way of giving God thanks. And so Paul had done that, and he was shaving his hair off, and that's what that's about. We don't really do that much today. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail for Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor 
and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. So last Saturday, my family and I drove across basically the entire southeast of the country. At 3.30 a.m. in South Carolina, we departed from my aunt and uncle's house on our vacation, and we drove straight through until about 5.30 or 6 o'clock and landed in Saratoga, and then I got up and preached on Sunday morning, so I'm still alive. Everything worked out okay. But during this, you know, 13, 14-hour drive, we were blissfully unaware of what was happening in Virginia. Like, we had no idea. Uh, we weren't watching the news or anything like that. We even saw signs for the city as we were traveling, but we didn't know anything was happening of, of, uh, of note. It wasn't until Sunday that we kind of took in the full account of what had happened, and, um, and just, along with all of you, I'm sure, just horrified at the events that transpired in that city. And there have been a lot of things, tensions in recent days like this, uh, in our country, uh, where things are, where horrific things are happening and protesting and counter-protesting and all these kinds of things. And uh, this is obviously not something that's new in the world, but this is something that is very, very old, which is why I wanted to make mention of it today, because we've actually talked about it from the book of Acts. Uh, and this is the, the issue of, uh, of racism and nationalism, or, or thinking of your people group as being over and above another people group, you know, or thinking there's a superiority there. And it seems to be alive and well, and it has been in the world throughout all ages. It's just one of those um, remnants of sin. And it seems like human beings cannot go for 30 seconds without creating distinctions, classes, in-groups, and out-groups, to the point that it doesn't even have to be skin color. It can be anything. It could be wealth, class, skin color. A lot, I mean, a lot of the racism we've seen in the world world history, the only way to tell people apart was by looking at their papers and figure out what race they were so you know who to hate. <laughs> I mean, it's bad. Racism is, is, a, is a bad sin. It's something that's in our world, and human people just can't seem to overcome it. Uh, it's a rough thing. Uh, Jewish people, as we saw in Acts 10 on April 2nd, not April Fool's Day, April 2nd, I preached from Acts 10, and we, we addressed some of these issues of racism that were present in the, in the New Testament people and what they, what they were trying to do as God was working in them. But throughout Acts and throughout the Gospels, we see Jewish people are racist towards Samaritan people. 
who they considered to be not fully Jewish. And, then, and, and they hated them. They called them dogs. They called them all kinds of things. And then the Samaritans hated the Jews because they were Jewish, you know? Um, we, we had uh, not only a, se- a separation from Gentiles, from between Jews and Gentiles, and, and God, God was intending that the Jewish people would be a beacon of light and share the good news of who he was with the whole world. But instead, because people got involved, meaning the Jewish people, they made it, well, actually, we despise Gentiles. Not only are we separate from them, but we're not out to win any, anyone over to God. We're, we're just, we're superior. We're above them. There was a nationalistic pride in the Jewish people at that time uh, where actually they said horrible things about the Gentiles, and the Gentiles likewise thought of the Jewish people as being, you know, high and mighty. So there was some of, some of that, even, even to the point of, uh, as far as discrimination goes, people saying, well, those people, if you read in the Gospels, those people are the sinners. But we are the righteousness of God. We have the law, all these different things. So in-groups, out-groups, um, segregation, racism, <laughs> nationalism, been a huge part of the, even the story of the book of Acts. And if you have eyes to see it, it's certainly there. And Jesus is a really interesting character because if you know that genders were segregated, if you know that races were segregated, and you know that different religions were segregated, you see people just in shock and horror at the way Jesus conducted himself in the New Testament. Why are you talking to a woman? Why are you sitting at a house of a tax collector? What are you doing, master? What are you thinking? This was the common refrain, and Jesus is like, didn't you know I was supposed to be about my father's business? Like, what's the big problem? All the time. It was constant, uh, Jesus breaking down these barriers, some of which we don't have as much today, but some, some which we do have some shadows of. But uh, in the midst of all of this, these tensions and things going on in the world, which are just abhorrent and wicked in the sight of God, um, there, is a, there is a word of God for us, and it comes from Acts 10. It comes from this story about Peter. And... Uh, it's, it's amazing how God works, and if you want to listen to that sermon, it's April 2nd on the website. But Peter is a Jewish guy. He doesn't have in mind that we are going to be, you know, welcoming in non-Jewish people into the full-fledged membership of our family in Christ. He has a nationalistic point of view about things. And it's not his fault necessarily. It's the water he was swimming in. It's the air he was breathing. It's what his culture said, so that's where he was at. Well, this, this guy, Cornelius, has a vision, this Gentile centurion, of uh, someone coming and sharing with him from God. And he said, in, the, in the vision, he gets an idea to call for Peter, uh, who was not really open to Gentile evangelism at this time in his own heart. And so God gives Peter a vision, and a sheet drops from heaven. And on that sheet are unclean animals, meaning the animals that the Jewish people were forbidden to partake in. And, uh, and three times, I think it was, two or three times, a sheet came out from heaven, and uh, in the vision, God said, kill and eat. And he goes, no, Lord. I haven't touched these foods ever from the time I was a boy till now. I don't want to dishonor you by, by defiling myself kill and eat. He says this over and over again. And the conclusion of this is, and uh, I'll pull it up here, the voice spoke to him a second time in 1015, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. That's what the voice says. And 
the metaphor, the uh, allegory, or the full, the full weight of this was not lost on Peter because we see later in Acts 10.34, Peter began to speak to Cornelius and the other Gentiles there. And from that vision about food, he had made this generalization, oh, it's about people. It's about people. He said to Cornelius' family, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. The Lord of heaven and earth, Peter learned, does not show favoritism. And from that day, except for a very small stumble where Peter reverted back to separating himself from people that were not like him, Gentiles, and Paul rebuked him pretty strongly for it. After that day, Peter ate with Gentiles. And when you eat with someone, what are you saying? Even in our world, I accept you fully. You are family. When you're here, you're family, right? Think about your most intimate family celebrations, Christmas, birthdays, uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, those people that you're eating with are your people. <laughs> and after this time, Peter ate with Gentiles and did not show favoritism because he said, you know, if God doesn't show favoritism and God is perfect, in him there is no darkness at all, who am I to, to be racist or, or to have this nationalistic pride that keeps me from, from, from certain people? God's word was pretty, pretty, uh, pretty strong. And uh, this, is, this is kind of what we see in the New Testament. We see people being shocked by who Jesus would not only talk to, but eat with and entertain women and non-Jewish people. And we see shock uh, in the, in the, in the uh, disciples, even though they probably could have figured it out if they had paid attention during Jesus' life in the book of Acts, when they are called to likewise um, accept, eat with everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And in all of this, we go back to my very favorite scripture, which is so instructive to me. In the midst of our turmoil today in our country and, uh, and the different things that are going on, which are very much like things that have gone on for, since the beginning of history. As Christians, we come back to Philippians 2, where it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value other people above yourselves. And that does not say people that look like you, dress like you, live, live the same place you do, vote like you, have the same color skin as you, even the same religion as you. Value others above yourselves. And we see Jesus demonstrated this in who he, how he treated people. Don't look only to your own interests, but think about what the interests of other people are. People that are far different from you. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. So the first part of that, three through four, you think, that sounds hard. And then, just like with Peter, we have to realize that that's what God's blazed the way for us. That's what God's done. The basis for how we view other people and interact in this world and how we, how we live, how we vote, how we raise our kids, where we live, what we do, what we don't do, uh, should all be through this filter of not only my own interests, but what about the interests of other people? And any kind of power that we have, just like Jesus, we are to empty it 
and serve and love our fellow human beings. So that's about, uh, that's kind of a robust theology of how, how this was, was looked at in the Bible. God does not show favoritism. He looks at the heart. We look at outward appearance. God looks at the heart and accepts everyone. Uh, and so we are to do that as well and take on that servant nature of God. Uh, but Christians, in the midst of a world where people show partiality, are to be people that do not show partiality, but, but treat everyone in the same kind of uh, humble way that Jesus treated us. Because he could have come down here and taken one look at our lives and been like, well, great, no, no grace for you, like the soup Nazi. No soup for you. <laughs> no grace for you. That's a Seinfeld reference. I'm not talking about. I know Nazis are in the news too. <laughs> Sorry about that. But you know, the, the, the point is we should all be very humbled by experiencing grace, right? All of us have been forgiven and given grace through Jesus. And that same kind of love and, and gift that God's given to us, how can we withhold that from other people? Uh, we must uh, love him. It says in Romans 2, 9 to 11, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Then once again, that awesome verse uh, repeated, for God does not show favoritism. Uh, and in 1 Samuel, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearances. The Lord looks at the heart. So let's not show favoritism or partiality in these things. Um, so that's, that's kind of my first observation. Um, the, and this all kind of comes out of the text, as, as you'll see. Sometimes it's really helpful in life to be associated with people or a group of people. And that's something that we see in today's text today. If you read in verse 12, we're going to go into it. So now we're in Acts 18, 12. And this is a kind of a mysterious verse, but it says, While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man they charged as persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. As Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about your words and names and your own law, settle it yourselves. I will not be the judge of it. In today's text, being associated with a group uh, was a really great thing for the Christians. In ancient Rome, by the time Christianity came around, they had actually started making it uh, the law of the land that you had to worship the emperor of Rome. You had to worship Caesar as your lord, and they were considered divine beings, the people in governmental power. And if you didn't worship by participating in all the festivals, giving all the offerings, doing all the public displays of praise and prayer and adoration uh, to these human uh, leaders who were considered to be gods among the people, you were in violation of Roman law, and you would be put, locked up, and you would be beaten, and you might be put to death. It's a pretty strong law, and no one was exempted from this law, except for the Jews, because the Roman, the Roman people, no matter how strong-handed they were with things, they were a reasonable people, and they said, you know, we don't want trouble with this big group of Jewish people who believe in one God. We don't want to cause trouble with them. We just want them to pay their dues and kind of quietly exist in society and not make any waves. And so instead of demanding that this big group 
of, of people that lives in the land that we govern worship our emperor, we'll make an exception for them. And we'll say that the Jewish faith is the one legal exemption from worshiping Caesar. And that was great for the Jews. They really enjoyed that privilege, uh, and, they, and they were able to not be persecuted through that privilege. So in our passage today, when Sosthenes, the Jewish uh, synagogue uh, people, appealed to Gallio, the proconsul, what they were doing was saying, look, these Christians are worshiping God in a way that is contrary to the law, not to the Jewish law, but to Roman law. You are breaking the rule. They're breaking the rule that we've been given the liberty to not come under. So these people are not Jewish. They are a, a sect that's causing trouble, breaking Roman law. You take care of them. And I think that was pretty gutsy on, on the Jewish people's part because they were kind of like flaunting their, their privilege to be able to be exempted. And what is the response? Uh, Gallio says, uh, you know what? This involves questions about words and names and your own law. I don't even, this is a Jewish sect. So why don't you settle it yourselves? And he established a legal precedent for Christians to continue to spread the gospel without being in trouble by the Roman government. So the very thing they were trying to make happen by force created this precedent that allowed Christianity to be a legal religion for over 100 years. Isn't that awesome? So this is a really, like, crummy situation. Poor Sosthenes gets the snot beaten out of him at the end of it while the proconsul watches. I think the proconsul was, was actually irritated. I think he was thinking, like, we give you an exemption. You're a special group. You use that privilege to exploit some other group that, as far as I'm concerned, is the same because they're monotheistic. They, they worship one God. Like, what are you doing? Go ahead, beat the guy. I don't care. <laughs> you know? So that's a really amazing thing. In, in our passage today, being associated with this larger group was a huge benefit for the Christians. But something I was thinking about this week is that sometimes association can be a terrible thing for Christians in these days. Uh, this week, I saw clips of white nationalist people on television claiming that the reason they're doing what they're doing is because they are Christians who are following God. That's a rough association. That's not helpful. And that's, you know, this is one of like many times when watching the news, I've just cringed and been like, oh boy, great. Awesome. <laughs> Church, when you watch the news and you see these things, oh, awesome. Oh my gosh, so depressing. You have, uh, you have a very small Southern Baptist church that's protesting military funerals. You're like, oh, it's not me. It's not me. I'm not with those people. <laughs> uh, you have all kinds of stuff like this where people are saying we're Christians on television and then identifying, and then when people meet you, they're kind of, they have this, all these different media portrayals that they think this is what a Christian looks like and you have a thousand hoops to jump through. And you almost have to like, be like, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not one of those people, those Christians. It's, it's very challenging, right? Being associated with a large group was great for these guys. They got to be a legal uh, faith for 100 years. But today, uh, sadly, we have people on television who do not represent us or our God. And uh, the question is, how do we distinguish ourselves or what does a true Christian really look like in the midst of all these media portrayals that are not Correct. What does it mean to be uh, a true Christian? And the answer that we always have to come back to, 
meaning there's all this biblical data. There's all kinds of stories in the Old and New Testament, some of which are very confusing, some which are troubling, and we, we try to reconcile. But there, there's a lot of people behaving badly in the Bible, behaving like people behave where, you know, in the name of whatever, they behave poorly. Uh, and then there's a lot of God stuff, but it's all kind of mixed together. So at the end of the day, if we're confused, if we're trying to find a true north, if we're trying to find an anchor for our souls, what does it mean? What does a Christian look like? Because it certainly doesn't look like what's been on TV lately. And the answer is, like Jesus. And like the fruit of Jesus' spirit, the Holy Spirit. We call it fruit of the spirit, but the spirit is the spirit of Christ. So the answer is, like Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We can't always understand everything about the invisible God that we read about in the Bible because he is not human. He's not constrained by time and space like we are. But in Jesus, God came in human form and manifested himself, as we saw in Philippians 2, emptied himself and became found in appearance as a man. And he, he suffered being hungry, being tired, being tempted in every way that we are, but was without sin. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So as we are seeing all these different portrayals, and again, I, this is only the most recent, but we have the Crusades and, and the history of the Western civilization that we have to deal with too. <laughs> like, there's a lot of rough stuff. But what is the real deal? What does it look like? It looks like Jesus. And it looks like the fruit of Jesus' spirit, the Holy Spirit. At the end of our text today, we see... An a good example, this man named Apollos, a man who spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. I'd like to have more people like him in the world today. And he hadn't even received Jesus' baptism yet. But he was teaching about Jesus accurately, and he was speaking boldly and explaining things in a really uh, powerful and dynamic way. He had... Uh, everything he needed to explain about Jesus. And then Priscilla and Aquila took him under their wing and taught him about the, the baptism that Jesus offered, uh, past John's baptism. And he humbly received it and kept on ministering. So this is a guy who taught about Jesus accurately, understood the way of salvation, and had great fervor and passion and was bold. And he was also humble and teachable. This is a person who is really manifesting the fruit of Jesus' Holy Spirit. Um, I think that what God is calling us to is this kind of, uh, of faith. This is what a Christian looks like. And the way that we could really characterize that is by looking at Galatians 5, 19 to 26. This is the fruit of the Spirit. And again, uh, spirit, the, fruit of the, the Holy Spirit is a synonym for the Spirit of Christ. So who Jesus was, that guy who was eating with tax collectors and sinners and associating with people that people didn't think he should be associating with, all these person that broke down all these dividing walls of hostility in society, this is the spirit that animated Jesus that, that every Christian has. So it sets up a contrast. It says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. And now I see some words coming up that are used to characterize Christians on television. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Uh, many, many things on that list people say we are. 
hateful, full of rage, selfish, uh, unfeeling, heartless, jealous. These are things that, but these are the, the opposite of the fruit of Jesus' spirit. And Paul says, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of Jesus' spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I hope you feel some kind of something reading that list. Every time I read this list, I say, God, I need you to do work in my heart. I want to have things from list B in my life, not the things from list A. I want to be like Jesus. Read that slow. Love. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me no more. You're welcome. What is love? Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for a friend. Love is personified in Jesus Christ, not only who he was, but what he did. He gave his life for you and for me as, a, as an atonement for our sin so that we could be in right, right relationship with God. And he also gave his life for people that are on death row that turn to him at the last minute before they get executed and have had no time to accrue righteous deeds or charitable giving. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for a friend. And uh, Jesus laid down his life for enemies, too. He laid down his life for his enemies. But that's his work. We don't have to do those kinds of things. We do. Love, joy, peace. Forbearance is like patience. I'm glad it says forbearance because that, that patience is too hard. <laughs> it means patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This is the Spirit of Christ. This is what Jesus looked like. And if you want to read the Gospels of this list next to your Bible, you can see that Jesus personified this in a variety of different contexts and in a variety of different uh, difficult situations. This is what a Christian looks like. And oftentimes, um, as confusing as the portrayals are in the media and the way people view Christians, these are the things that ultimately are to characterize us. And, are, and people are to know, it says in uh, John 13, Jesus said, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. What does he say, it four or five times in that one verse? And the love that he demonstrated, just as I've loved you, he gave his life for his love to his friends and his enemies. So in the climate of the times we live in, what will characterize us as Christians? What will characterize us as Christians? Because certainly... 
No one wants to be associated with the glop of Christians on television or, or who they say we are. Um, at least I certainly don't. A lot of times people are doing, are, are, are proponents of things I believe in, but they're, they're doing it in, the, in an unchristian way, pushing for things I do believe in and care about in an unchristian way, and then that becomes also another layer. What kind of person are we going to be? What will characterize us? Many people become discouraged and confused when they realize that the portrayal that's on television, what people say, is, is not something that they want to be associated with. And they decide, I'm just going to leave the faith. I can't stand having the stigma on me. But that's not the answer. Losing our salvation, losing our relationship with God is not the answer. The answer is to become the kind of person that Jesus was in the world that we live in, in the variety of situations we encounter. Uh, who, people that love are joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good and faithful, gentle and full of self-control. People that look not only to their own interests, but to the interests of other people. People that do not use their place as Christians as something to be used to their own advantage. But instead, take that great privilege that Jesus has given us of our salvation and laying it down and taking on the nature of a servant and serving other people who are suffering, who are marginalized, uh, who are hurting in this world. That's the kind of person uh, that Jesus is creating uh, by the work of his spirit. It's how Jesus did, did his life. Uh, he called people to repentance, and, and, and he didn't show favoritism. Anyone who would turn to him, he received. And we have to do likewise. So as the, as the band comes up this morning, we're going to sing this song I really felt led to add to the set. You are good, you are good when there's nothing good in me. And in this, I, I, just, I just am challenging the church to think about really becoming the real deal because you cannot fake it as a Christian. And you, I mean, maybe you could in previous generations, I don't know. You can't fake it. You have to be the real deal. In this world especially, in the times we live in, you have to be the real deal. You have to be the person that breaks down walls of hostility with love, breaks down dividing walls, that shares God's way of salvation through Jesus Christ with people and loves them into the kingdom.